Well, let's pray together, and uh, then we'll, we'll begin. Father in heaven, Lord, thank you today that we can again come and uh, feast on your word. We ask that it would uh, provide what we need in our lives today. In Christ's name, amen. amen. Well, I want to thank you for the, uh, I can't say unexpected, because Tom always does this organizes something that surprises me yet again. I think I have the best head elder in the world. Um, <laughs> so thank you, Tom, and the rest of you. Um, and uh, I've known Tom since um, we lived on the same floor together in college. And uh, Meyer Hall, and then he moved to Berman Hall, where the good students move. <laughs> I, I stayed behind just to keep an eye on the others. <laughs> and uh, so thank you very much, Tom, and thank the rest of you as well. Um, I consider the church uh, a body, like uh, our elder this morning, presiding elder Steve, was talking about. We come with many different gifts, and it's the body that makes the difference. And Sometimes the mouth can get you in trouble, um, and the body still continues on. So I appreciate your, your patience and your love, and uh, this plant that <laughs> points out um, the need of care, like each of us need care. And uh, I also want to say that Anything that you said about me that's positive is more a reflection probably of my wife than me. So you didn't hear it all, dear, but my wife uh, is really, um, you know, the Bible says that a pastor should be the husband of one wife, which means a pastor really can't do what he does without a wife. And there's the need for both sides, uh, the feminine side and the masculine side of ministry. And we work together. So what you said to me, you said to her. With that in mind, <laughs> love covers a multitude of sins. <laughs> what a great title today. <laughs> love covers a multitude of sins. <laughs> First Peter 4, uh, 7 through 11. Thank you, George, for reading that for us today. And the passage, if you want to look at it again, is, uh, is, of course, after many other things have been said in Peter. And Peter, this is not the first time that he's mentioned love. It's not the first time he's mentioned having fervent love. But this comes into focus in, in this particular passage. So let's again ask the Lord to bless us as we read. Father in heaven, bless us as we open your word today. Calm our spirits. Give us collective thoughts that could help each of us in the journey um, that you have for us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore be serious and watchful in your prayers. So our passage, as we study today, starts with this, this phrase, the end of all things is at hand. Now that was written um, about 2,000 and some years ago. And so people will have a criticism. Well, you know, the Bible said the end was at hand many times. Where is the promise of his coming, says Peter later on. Scoffers will arise saying that. What does it mean, the end of all things is at hand? Well, in Acts chapter 1, verse 7, Jesus said to his disciples who were trying to figure out when he would come again, now is this the time of your coming? He says, it's not revealed to you, the times. Don't talk about that. <laughs> then in Luke chapter 21, if you want to look there for a minute, um, there's a whole passage about the end of time. And, and look just at a couple of verses there. Right after the offering, he 
had an offering appeal, and there was the widow that gave her mites. Then in verse 5, then as some spoke of the temple, how it was adorned and with beautiful stones and donations, he said, These things which you see, the days will come, in which not one stone will be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. Well, those are huge stones. For those of you who have gone to Israel and looked at the temple, uh, these are huge stones. And they're still there. You can see them. You know, 30 or 40 feet wide, 60, 30 to 40 feet dip. We don't even know how they moved them there. Some of them are still there. They're not on top of each other, but they're still there. And uh, he's saying, you know, this is, it's, it's going to fall down. The end of this temple is going to come. Um, and then he goes through a list of things that will happen. Verse 6. These things which you see, the days will come, in which not one stone will be left upon another that will not be thrown down. Verse 8, take heed that you be not deceived, for many will come in my name, saying, saying uh, I am he, and the time will draw near. But don't go after them. Verse 9, when you see or hear of wars and rumors of wars or commotions, don't be terrified, for these things must come to pass first, but the end will not come immediately. And verse 10, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. Literally the word there is ethnos against ethnos, ethnic group against ethnic group. And there'll be a great earthquake. There'll be great earthquakes in various places and famines and pestilences and there'll be fearful sights and great signs in the heavens. But before all these things, they will lay hands on you, persecute you, deliver you up to synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings for my name's sake. And it continues on, down to verse 29. Then he spoke to them a parable, saying, Look at the fig tree and the trees, and when they are already budding, you will see and know that yourselves that the summer is now near. Some people have made a lot out of that, saying, Okay, that's a generation, that means this and that and talks about how the time of the Gentiles will come. Um, I think the key concept is verse 36. Watch therefore and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. So don't worry so much about the exact time. Many different things are going to happen but just pray that you'll be ready to go whatever it is in your life that's coming to whatever year the time of the end is for you or the time of the end is for me. And of course, in Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 2, Paul even said, there's going to be a falling away that comes first. Um, and Jesus is coming. Every chapter in 1 Thessalonians, at the end of each chapter, it says he's coming again. He's coming again. He's coming again. He's coming. Every single chapter ends like that. But then it says in 2 Thessalonians, but wait a minute, there's a falling away that comes first. And even Peter himself, in Peter, um, Peter's dialogue with Jesus in John chapter 21, verse 8, what did Jesus say to him? There's going to come a time when you can't even put your belt on. You can't even put your clothes on. In other words, Peter, you're going to live a good long life. You're going to live until you can hardly move. So the time of the end is not something that's just happening right then for Peter, is the point I'm making. But he's trying to alert those listening that we need to be ready for the end of all things is at hand. And that can mean a different thing at different times in, in the history of the world. And the timing of Peter, of course, is interesting. Uh, Peter was written in about 50 or 60, they, they think. Some say even 68, as late as 68. And of course, what happened next? What was going to happen right then? It's going to be the very thing that Jesus talked about in Luke chapter 21. Those stones would be cast down, and Jerusalem would be surrounded by armies, and the temple would be destroyed. The end of all things is at hand, he says to Peter. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. Now, this is a very interesting passage. When you start to look and drill down on, on the passage, this, this word for serious is be sober, which literally means to be, well, let's look at it. 
sophroneo, to be sound of mind. So when you have something that's serious about to happen, you need to focus in. You need to concentrate. And that's the point. Be serious because the end of all things is at hand. There is a need for real focus. Now you break that word down further. The root word of that is sophron, which means to be self-controlled. Sozo, though, is that so part, means to sail, uh, to save, to heal, to be safe. You know, our, our, our kind of idea here is to, to heal a hurting world. Be sound of mind, be self-controlled, so you can be a part of a saving, healing work. And then, friend, or frain, to rein in, to curb, or fence. So in other words, focus your mind, focus your prayers to be focused on this idea of bringing healing. And that's the purpose of prayer. It's not, it's not to go out and have some mystical experience by yourself. It is actually supposed to be directed to the healing, salvific work of the body of Christ. That's the idea. So be watchful. Focus your mind in a way that can bring healing, that can bring salvation. Sometimes our prayer, ideas of prayer, they don't bring healing and salvation. They bring neuroticism. And they bring an over-focus uh, on ourselves that, frankly, is somewhat damaging. I say this because I do a lot of counseling. I counsel many, many, many days. And I have found people that if they don't have this outward focus to prayer, they can actually do themselves in. So let me give you a couple of texts about this um, that come to mind. Psalm 130. Look at Psalm 130. And I remember, I, I just was at G, GYC, or the uh, General Youth Conference, or Generation of Youth for Christ. Uh, used to be named different things, depending on who you talk to. And uh, it was such a rich blessing to be there. I saw Tom and uh, my head elder, which I was... Uh, overjoyed to see. He always has gifts for me. <laughs> and uh, then we saw one of our mutual friends, Reuben, and we, we had good remembrances. But the other thing was to see so many young people that, uh, that I've been able to minister to through the years. Some of them I didn't even recognize, and some of them didn't really recognize me because there's a little more snow on the mountains now. But as they came up, and one, one came up, he goes, Pastor Don! And I, was, I, I said, man, and then I, and then I placed him. And he was this guy that had gotten out of balance in his prayer life. He had taken a week of prayer and different things so seriously that he had started a book. And he had written down everything he said he was going to pray for in this book. He was sober, he was watchful under prayer, but he was focusing it on himself. And he had this big, huge book. In fact, he had three books, three volumes. And these volumes were filled with things that he had to pray about before he left his room. And he felt like he had to do that. And he would get up at 3 in the morning, and he would not get done in time for class. So he was getting called into the office. And then finally, he came into my office, because back then I did something different at the school than I do now. And I came, he came into my office, and he told me what was happening. And then I said, well, I want to see these books. He brought in three books. And these books, he had looked at the books so much. He was so stressed out about what he had to pray about and what he needed to focus on that they were actually filled with his oil from his fingers. And so I read him this psalm. I'll show you this psalm I read to him. Psalm 130. We read it together. Out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to, to the voice of my supplications. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. When we stopped right there, I said, look, you know, you've got all this stuff marked down. You've got books full of things that you've got to pray about. But God himself doesn't even keep books like this. He doesn't keep the book. Did you ask God to forgive you for the thing? Yes. Well, then why are you still praying about it? I don't know if he forgave me. I said, let's read this again. All week he struggled back and forth. 
about things that maybe he did wrong. You know, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And he, 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 he cast the things behind his back. Forget about it. Move on. But I think many times people get stuck in false ideas of prayer that are not focused outward but inward to the detriment of themselves. Are you with me? There is forgiveness that you may be feared. The fear of the Lord leads to life. And he who abides in it will abide in satisfaction. He won't be visited with evil. This is a wait for the Lord. My soul waits, verse 5. In other words, I can't wait for the Lord to come. In his word do I hope. Not in my lists, not in my ideas. In his word do I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than those who watch in the morning. I can't wait to get up. More than those that watch in the morning. And then notice now the focus. It's no longer on himself. It's shifted from himself to the Lord and what the Lord can do. And now notice verse 7. O Israel, hope in the Lord. Now this is an outward focus. Can you see that? For with the Lord there is mercy, and with him is abundant redemption. For he shall redeem Israel from all her iniquities. Do you see how the focus moved from a self-focus to a God-focus to another focus? And i got to tell you, when you're watchful under prayer, that's what you're supposed to be doing. That's what even the, the words are saying here. Now, we struggled back and forth. And finally, I told the guy, I said, look, you got to burn these books. What? This is my devotional life. This is what I've done for you. I said, this is, this, is, this is not a devotional life. This is a deformed life. This is a, this is a, this is a confused life. This is holding you back. I believe you should burn the books. He was like, man, I don't want to burn the books. I said, look, I'm not going to burn your books, but I'm just telling you, if God gets rid of his books and you got your books, I don't know. I don't know what to say. And I still remember he struggled and struggled, and then he came down. We had a burning, we had a big burning, and he came down. And he was standing there, and he didn't have his books. I was like, oh, no. And then he ran back. He brought his books in this bag. He went and got his books. He put the books in the fire. There was The flames went up like 15 feet. It's like, and someone says, why is that, why is that, why is that flame so high? I said, <laughs> he goes, because I've been touching the books all the time. It's got my oil on them. That's what he said. He points to me. I'm like, oh, great. <laughs> I, I, I didn't say anything. But... And you know, I saw this guy at GYC. He's now involved in a successful ministry. And you know what he told me? I'm helping people know how to pray about something other than themselves. Boy, that warmed my heart. So be sober and be watchful in your prayers. Why? Because if you're sober and you're watchful, you're going to have if it's done correctly, a sound mind, not an unbalanced mind. A sound mind. Now let me show you what, let me just illustrate this one more. Maybe I, maybe I should have just preached on this and that's it. I mean, I didn't expect to spend this long on it. But um, sound mind is also used at the end of this passage in 2 Timothy. God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind. You see how a sound mind is at the end there? So what leads up to it? You're getting rid of the anxieties. Anxieties are self-focused. They're future-focused. And they, uh, they can cause you problems. So God has not given those. Many times they have people make a list of what those are. And then what has he given us? Instead, he's given us power. This is God-focused. What are the promises of God? What are the passages of God? What, who are the people of God that this person needs to meet to get them through that that time of stress that they're in. How many of you are understanding what I'm saying? How, how, can, how can I help someone through that? How, how can they focus on God? Remember, not self-focused, but God-focused in Psalm 130. And then other focus. No, notice what happens next. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of what? Love. That's now what? Other-focused. And now you're becoming healthy. How many think that love is a healthy place to be? And love, it's other-focused. And then finally, what, what's the result? You have a, a what? 
So be fervent and watchful in your prayers. Be serious and watchful in your prayers. For what purpose? Why is it that you're serious? Why are you watchful? Uh, why are you abstaining from wine? Sometimes you can get drunk with other things. Why is this happening? Um, focus your prayers in a way that's not self-focused, but God-focused and other-focused ultimately. And when that happens in your prayers, it's, it's supposed to happen in your prayers and in your private worship, um, then healing of others will be the focus of your devotional time. And this is, the, uh, this is to be the, the focus of your, of your devotional time. I, I, think, uh, I think I can't say that enough. I've seen it so much. Um, uh, I've seen people get tripped up so much by this. Above all things, have fervent love one for another. So what flows out of this? What's the summary? In other words, if you have the right kind of prayer... It's going to lead to what? What kind of priority? Fervent love for one another. In other words, it's outward focused. Are you with me? And you're going to have that. You're going to be possessed with that. And you're going to have fervent love. It's going to be without ceasing. You're going to constantly not be thinking about yourself and all your problems, but you're going to be thinking, what about others? When you go to church, you're thinking about, wait, how can I help someone else? And by the way, I think church is a very good thing to come to. And it's not just to come for yourself. It's to come for others. When we get together, when we get together, things happen that could never happen when we're alone. Uh, sometimes I think people, this is another problem with private devotions. I hear people say, well, I was out in the woods for five hours. Okay, that's fine, but that's, that's, that can become a problem. I, I'm just being honest with you. You got to come out of the woods. Enoch came out of the woods too. You got to go down to the valley. You got to meet with people. If you stay out there too long, you're going to get yourself messed up. Hello? So, uh, <laughs> um, fervent love without ceasing. You have this priority of focusing on others. And you stretch out, you extend, you put forth effort fervently towards others. Eros is self-focused. It's all about me. I want my employer to think about me. I want my parents to think about me. I want God. Why is God not thinking about me? Why are my children not thinking about me? What about my spouse? What's in it for me? How many of you met people or how many of you have ever been like this where the focus was we, not we-mar, but me-mar? <laughs> You're from me-mar, right? So, there can be that focus, eros, caritas. This is better. Okay, my employer gives me something, I give them something back. My parents give me something, I give them something back. I got some gifts for Christmas, I'm going to give them something back. My mom gave me money, I'm going to give it for the offering appeal. What a great offering appeal today. How many like that offering appeal? So there's this 50-50. But the word here is love, agape, is this idea that God is so in me, I'm so into God, that I have something to give to others. Now the giving is going this way. I'm giving to others because I've been receiving from God. I'm giving, giving, giving. How many want to have that kind of an experience? And uh, this is illustrated in Peter's life. We'll come back to that. Above all things, have fervent love for one another. Uh, John 13, verse 1. Go with me to John chapter 13. And in John chapter 13, we're reading about Peter and his interaction with Jesus. And of course, we're studying the book of Peter, so it makes good sense to go and look at some interactions that Peter had. And since we're talking about the end of all things, I thought of this passage in, in, Peter, in, in John chapter 13. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that the hour had come that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the what? To the end. So there's this idea of end time again, just like we see in our passage. And um, Peter is right there. 
And he loved Peter and the others, and he loved them to the end. End time love. And that end time love had a tangible uh, outflow that Jesus introduced. He got himself ready, the supper being ended, and he began to wash the feet of the disciples. He poured water into a basin, and began to wash the disciples' feet and wiped them with the towel with which he was girded. It's a foot-washing love. It's an outward love. I once had a nursing teacher. I had many nursing teachers. Um, and uh, I had a rough time in nursing school. It, it, uh, it was not because uh, of the teachers. It was because of me. And, uh, <laughs> um, but I had this one teacher. Her name was Andrea, and, and Dr. Steele. And Dr. Steele was, she was, um, she did not suffer fools, uh, you know, softly, kindly. She, and I was rather foolish at that time. So she was always uh, uh, correcting me. And um, one time, I don't remember what it was, but I was in a discussion group with some of the others, and I got them to do all this stuff, which I was supposed to do. <laughs> Part of my delegation abilities, I guess. And so they were all lined up to do like 10 different things. <laughs> they were doing my assignment, okay, basically. And Dr. Steele heard about that. And she called me in and she said, this assignment is for you, not for them, for you. And I was like, and uh, she had put a new piece of artwork in her office that caught my attention and, and I was trying to save myself from more pain and stress from her rebuke, you know, and I realized that, but she had right behind her head, right behind her head, there was this, a bedpan. How many of you know what a bedpan is? And there's this bedpan right behind her head on the wall. And I'm like, why do you have a bedpan on the wall behind your head. Don't try and change the subject. I said, I didn't try and change the subject. You put a bedpan on the wall. Don't you think that, that, that would change the subject if you saw a bedpan on the wall? And she said, well, you, you, got a, you, you got a good point. She goes, but you're trying to get me off you. And I said, that's, that's true. Okay, I'll give you that. But please explain the bedpan, and then we'll come back to me. She goes, you're delegating to me. I was like, okay, you don't have to say it, but I, I'm, just, I'm, I'm just curious, and it, I can't really concentrate if I don't know why it's there. <laughs> and she said, that bedpan is there because I want myself and everyone that comes up in here to remember that our life is a life of service, a service to others in their most vulnerable times. Man, that's really what the Christian life is about. It's service to others in their most vulnerable times. Can you say amen? amen? Man, that really impacted me. In fact, I thought about that a long time. It ended up in a sermon called Bed Pans and His Plans. In fact, I actually got a picture of a bedpan, and I put my face in the bedpan. I don't know if you know what's normally in a bedpan, but it's not my face normally. And there I was in the bedpan, and I handed that around the hospital, and people were like, what in the world? But that's the point Jesus is making with his disciples. He's saying, look, you're thinking about yourself. Who's going to be the greatest? You're, th you're watchful unto yourself. And I want you to learn something else. The Christian life is about serving others. This got Peter's attention. And then he said, do this for others. Do it for one another. And there's two groups that came to that foot washing or two major players in the story is Peter and Judas. And, and Peter was willing to follow Jesus even in the face of withering and continuous public rebuke. Jesus was always rebuking Peter. And Peter accepted it. How many want to be like Peter? Yeah. Willing to accept public rebuke. Uh, 
And then there was Judas, unwilling to follow even private rebuke. And those are the two groups, and those are the two tendencies we have. And this is the big struggle. And this is why we have to learn how to have fervent love one for another. And we have to learn to listen to what Jesus does that. Now, Peter had seven things that he loved, if you read through the stories in the gospel. He loved security. He liked being a fisherman. And Jesus said, leave that and follow me. He loved his family. And Jesus said, leave your father and mother and follow me. He loved earthly interests. He said, you know, Jesus said there, um, right at the base of Mount Hermon, um, who do men say that I am? Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Blessed are you, Peter, for flesh and blood is not revealed. This is my Father in heaven. And then Jesus said, you know, I'm going to die. I'm going to die on the cross. Jesus, Peter said, you know, that's not a good idea. Let me just tell you, that's a bad idea. And Jesus said to him, wait a minute. Get thee behind me, Satan. You're not even accepting the, my most important message, the message of the cross. You have a love for interest, self-interest, more than the cross. Demons love this present world. This is something we sometimes struggle with. How many of you struggle with the right kind of love? And what this is saying is fervent, agape love. It doesn't come naturally. Love of physical needs, self. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus said, can't you just watch and pray with me for an hour? Can't you stay awake? Can't you just, oh, i got to go to sleep. Love of self-image and reputation. You know, I've read a book by C.S. Lewis years ago that tried to make this case that there's a difference between the word phileo and agape and Sounds really great when you read John 21. And he said it three times, and these were different Greek words. Only problem, it does not match up with all kinds of other texts in the New Testament. But the point is, I think, that when Jesus was with Peter there in the hall, judgment hall, he was right next to a fire that was made with charcoal. And then in John 21, right next to a fire made with charcoal. And he calls to remembrance how Peter betrayed him in the fire, next to the charcoal fire, and he said it three times. And he was trying to say, you know what? You have to have a different kind of love. You have to have a deeper, more fervent love. Instead of worrying about your reputation so much, you need to love me enough to publicly testify for me. Now, this is not a small thing. I meet counselors, I help train counselors here, I teach a class, the moral identity of a counselor. We need bold counselors. Hello? We need Christian counselors that are willing to share Christ, not find out ways to not share Christ. I've read so many books that give you techniques that could get in the way of you sharing Christ. And the only thing that heals people is Christ, that's not your books. You have to find a way to do that. But that means sometimes you are going to have to go through a rough time. People don't usually like to be talked to uh, directly about issues. How many of you following what I'm saying? But if you love them, how many think it might be good to share Christ? That's the point. Love of safety. You can be persecuted, arrested for preaching. Sometimes we love safety. I'm just reading about the English Reformation. So I've been reading, oh man, reading, looking at things. I'm getting more and more excited about this tour this summer where we're focusing on a new area, the Reformation. But I tell you, folks in that Reformation time period, they were willing to die, many of them, and some of them were not willing. And the stories are just so amazing to look at. And this is both sides of the aisle. There were Catholics that were willing to die for their faith, and there were Protestants that were willing to die for their faith. And I have high respect for both of them. Um, Henry VIII was kind of an interesting guy. He tried to kill a few Protestants and a few Catholics <laughs> back and forth because he wanted to be a Catholic, although didn't want the Pope. But it made for a very interesting thing. Um, and he executed 
His closest friend, Thomas More, I mean, he grew up with this guy from nine years old. And the guy was a Catholic. They had grown up Catholics together. And he executed him, and he also executed another guy named Fisher. And Melanchthon was so upset by it over in, in uh, Germany that even though these guys were Catholics, he was so upset about how they were killed that he said, we can't come together, together with you really in the Reformation because of how you turned on somebody. He didn't have fervent love for somebody you knew that long. Very fascinating. Love of safety and love of life. He wants to save his life, we'll lose it. These are the loves that we struggle with. Love of other things rather than God. So have fervent um, love, or love will cover a multitude of sins. This word cover means to hide. Jesus did not publicly expose Judas. He publicly exposed Peter many times, but Judas, he knew he couldn't handle it, so he worked a different way with him. It didn't work, but he demonstrated how he worked behind the scenes. Judas could have been fully covered, but Christ in his covering sacrifice was rejected by Judas, ultimately. Ultimately did not receive his rebuke, his chastening, and said, I'm I reject you, and I go against what you stand for. But that doesn't mean that Jesus didn't try. He tried to work behind the scenes with Judas. It didn't work. Love will cover a multitude, a large number of sins. Many of us, in fact, all of us have a multitude of sins. And... God's love can cover all of them. We're not covering anybody's sins. God's love is covering people's sins. And when they see how we act like Christ, then they come in touch with Christ, who ultimately covers their sins. Sin is not a noun, by the way. It's a verb. It's not who you are, it's what you do. And I think this has to be stated again. I stated it last week. Um, there's a lot of confusion over this, and people get really slippery with it. And uh, you have to understand what sin is for it to be covered. And that's the precious thing that Jesus did in coming so close to us in the incarnation. And uh, after the sermon last week, a number of you gave me even more, even more uh, telling text and different things from Hebrews, which I really appreciate. I added those slides in. But one person said to me, you know, sin is not a noun, it's a verb. And I was like, that's good. I got to share that. So there are additional ways to show love in this passage, though, going back to Peter as we're finishing our passage up. The end of, things, all, end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious, watchful under your prayers. Of all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. And then it goes on, be hospitable to one another without grumbling. Another way to demonstrate the love of God is hospitality. How many of you have ever been the recipient of hospitality in this church? And how many of you have ever been the provider of hospitality in this church? How many of you have hands that work? Let's just try this out. Um... This, this, this whole idea of praying for one another, praying to the end to help each other, and being hospitable, these are outward-focused uh, ideas of fervent love. And this is a love that's not to be done with grum grumbling, to be hospitable, uh, philo, or Philadelphia, friendship, to be fond of, actually, literally, the word is being fond of entertaining aliens. Strangers. Um, and remember, this is in a culture that considers Christians aliens. And what it's saying is, you are considered aliens, and you probably are aliens of this culture, but invite them to your house. And fight the alien attitude with doing something that helps them not feel alienated. And I'm going to tell you what, there are some people that have the gift of hospitality. I think my wife has the gift of hospitality. And uh, I, I know she has the gift of hospitality. And she will draw people in with food. And 
fellowship. And, you know, I sometimes, I'm not that good at it. She goes, well, let's put up the tree and lights and stuff. I'm like, oh, my goodness. <laughs> well, we have enough trees in the yard. We bought a yard. It's got trees, lights, you know. But she's going, no, this creates this environment. <laughs> um, and then everything that goes with it. I remember we had one guest. They said, how did you make that pie? They kept talking about the pie. This is not something I would know how to do. And then, as a matter of fact, they were, they were, they called me up from their office. They were very high prominent position. And they called me on the phone. I need to talk to you. Yes, what is it? I need the recipe for your wife's pie. <laughs> I was like, is this an official call? Yes, it is. <laughs> If I told you who this was, you'd all know them. But that, I mean, this is very high up. The thing that touched the person's heart was pink pie and carob pie. And I was like, that's hospitality. And the gift of hospitality, bringing people together. And this hospitable is to be toward one another without gagushmoi. Without grumbling, the word in Greek is gagushmoi. Look at the person next to you and say, don't gagushmoi. <laughs> I think there should be a t-shirt that says, don't gagushmoi. I mean, it'll just start things. So, without gagushmoi, don't grumble. Now, if you want to see, hear a great sermon on grumbling, a couple of weeks ago, Dr. Nedley preached about grumbling. This was a very good sermon. And I recommend that you go back and listen to that. But could it ever happen that the very things we're supposed to be doing to show fervent love can be things we don't like to do and be things that we struggle with? And how many of you have ever struggled with being hospitable only to be thankful later that you invited somebody over? and that You were entertaining angels. They actually helped you more than you helped them. And this is the picture that's given here of having fervent love that flows from prayer that flows from being watchful and flows from a devotional life that's outward focused. As each one has received a gift, minister to one another as good stewards. Now, this is the point that Steve brought out beautifully in his welcome to you this morning. He says, man, I'm so happy to see you because I understand what you've gone through. I, we get together, and when we get together, things happen that just... And he was kind of overwhelmed with is uh, looking at you today. And then Tom comes up and does all this and overwhelms me. But that's the point. This word actually for minister is oikonomos. Oikos means house. It doesn't mean you're by yourself. You're in a fellowship. You're in a house. It literally means a house distributor. Someone who's in the house, who's working together to distribute things. It's like a treasurer or a preacher. We have a great treasurer in our church. Where's my treasurer? Where is she? Right there. She's back there with the money. So, and, and she's always putting, she's distributing things. She sent me a budget for the board that's going to be tomorrow. This is, this is the money we have. This is what we need to do. And she's thought through how things are supposed to be distributed. How many are thankful for a great treasurer? Amen. And I'm thankful for the gifts. How many are thankful for the gifts that everybody brings together? And this whole idea is that you receive a gift, then handing it out the right way. This is speaking to something outside yourself. It's something that you can't do yourself. You come together collectively, and you minister as a body. I frankly am very enthused and enthusiastic about the coming year, about what this congregation is going to do together. Not what I'm going to do, not what you're going to do, but what we're going to do. How many of you are thankful about that? We're going to have an evangelistic meeting. We're going to have a week of prayer next week. Then we're going to have an evangelistic meeting. Stallone Health is helping us with that again. Um, Randy Steffens Jr., he did a great job up in Dutch Flat. Totally flattened the place. And so we're bringing him here, and he's going to be doing the series here. You're not going to want to miss that series. And he's not a long-winded preacher. He makes a big idea of this. He says, no sermon should go greater than 30 minutes. Of course, it's not true. I've shown him all the evidence, but he's still struggling. 
Still struggling. Deutsch and I are working on him. We got, we got Randy, you got Randy, you got me, and then you got Deutsch. Deutsch has been known. I mean, you mind if I say this? He and, he and I have talked about this a lot, and he's actually talked to me about the length of my sermons. And then the next time he preached, he went till 1.15. I said, praise the Lord, I'm safe. <laughs> so, so, but anyway, so he's going to have these short but powerful messages. Um, I'm teaching church leadership administration this, this term, and so my students are going to be helping with that and teaching marriage and family, and they're going to be helping with the marriage and family aspects, taking care of the kids. It's going to be a collective effort. Can you say hallelujah? Hallelujah. And that's the point. As Each one has, has received a gift, minister it to one another. And coming together in that combined ministry is what Peter is saying here is fervent love. It's not just what you do, it's what we do, but it can't happen unless we're together. So that's why the elders said, look, there's a midweek service, come together and, and encourage one another as we listen to the Bible characters. Of the manifold grace of God, we're stewards of the many-sided, that word manifold means many-sided, many variegated uh, uh, hues, pictures of the grace of God. Look at that person next to you. Go ahead, look at them and say, you are a picture of the grace of God. Say that, go ahead. Yeah. And you know what? They're a unique picture of the grace of God. How many of you like the special music today? Amen. Each of them had a special hue. <laughs> Whatever. Maybe that's not how they sounded. But they worked together. Wasn't that great? Amen. And that's a picture of the manifold grace of God. Amen. As I listened to it, I was like, whoa, this is the grace of God. Amen. That's a picture. Now, look at Titus chapter 2. I want to show you just something about this. Because Titus chapter 2, has, is, it, it, the whole chapter really is about the grace of God. And to the pastoral epistles, it's meant actually to instruct the church. First and Second Timothy were supposed to be read in every single church as an instruction manual. And so was Timothy. I mean, so was Titus. These are the pastoral epistles. And look at chapter 2. But as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine, that the older men may be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, love, and patience. The older women, likewise, they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed, how many can see that this is the, the many-sided vision of the church? You've got men there, tells them what to do. You've got women that's telling them what to do. Be discreet, be chaste, be homemakers, be good, be obedient. Uh, likewise, verse 6, exhort the young men to be sober-minded. Remember, be watchful and sober-minded. In all things, showing yourself a pattern of good works and doctrine, showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility, sound speech that can't be condemned that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. So this is the whole idea. The fervent love of a united body is silencing the outsiders and drawing them into the love. That's the idea. Um, exhort bond servants to be obedient to their own masters, be well-pleasing. That would be like saying to someone, be a good worker. Um, and... Don't pilfer, verse uh, 10, showing good fidelity. This is that whole idea of distributing uh, honestly with integrity, that they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior in all things. Verse 11, now finally up to grace. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to who? How did it appear? How did it appear? Through the body of Christ with people working together in fervent love. Does that make sense? In other words, the grace of God does not appear just from you. It's from you. <laughs> it's from us. It's not he versus she, but it's we. Are you with me? Don't try and pit the sexes against each other. This, that's, this is what happens in the culture today. Don't try and pit the races against each other. Don't do that. Work together. It's us. It's we. 
All right? Hello? It's not diversion, equity, inclusion. It's, it's uh, divine, uh, it's inspirational, um, uh, I don't know what to say next. Divine, inspirational uh, excellence. You've got to die to have that happen. You come together. You're not just yourself. You come together. All right? And that's the point it's making. For the grace of God has appeared uh, to all men. It brings salvation, teaching us the denying ungodliness and worldly lust. We should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed, purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Notice it's not own special person, it's people, it's everyone. Speak these things and exhort them. Um, so this whole idea of the men and the women working together in the house of God, the, the oikonomos, good stewards are in the oikos, and that's the whole idea. You come together in the house of God. You know, as I've been studying the Protestant Reformation, the big switch that went from Catholicism back to Protestantism in uh, very much more abrupt terms in Germany than in England, but the big fight was over what do you do at church? Do you just march around and kiss the Bible? That's what the Catholics do in many of their rituals. Nothing, maybe they don't know better, but... You go to the services, and they have the Bible. There, it's beautiful. It's got it's got gilding. It's it's gold. It's it's a beautiful Bible, but they never open it. They they just march around and kiss it. And the Puritans were a little different. They all had their own Bibles, <laughs> eventually, and they would read the Bible, and everything was built around having that word get in them and then work through them. And the whole idea of the worship was very simple, because the worship was to be lived by the people, not by some kind of ritual. Hello? That's the idea. It's the manifold wisdom of God. Now, who's this? Who? A.G. Daniels and his wife. I bring this up because, you know, husbands and wives have got to work together on this kind of thing. And the only reason I bring it up, and uh, no, no, no disrespect to the Daniels family, but I was looking up fervent love throughout the pen of inspiration, Ellen White's writings, and I, I have a whole document. I'm tempted to go through the whole thing, but I won't. Um, but this one hit me. The spirit and habit of seeing others' faults and commenting on them is satanic in its origin. And when persons have once been overcome on this point, Satan's magnifying glasses are before their eyes to create mountains out of molehills. Well, why do I bring that up? Because in Titus, we just saw this picture of how husbands and wives, they work together, and they also work, the women sometimes work together, they have a women's ministry, but that point is to build up the men, and the point of the women is to build up the women, and then they come together and they work together. But Mrs. Daniels had some issues. And she was, she had this, well, LOI calls it, a satanic spirit of criticizing other people. And it influenced her husband. Her husband did stuff he would never do. He said stuff he would never say if he hadn't been influenced by his wife in this way. And she said to the wife, your husband's listening to you too much. And if this gets started, it's going to go on and on and on. How many think that this is a pretty wise counsel? Because you can have the opposite of fervent love. And what is that? Fervent hate. And it makes mounds of things. Did you see this? Did you see that? Well, nothing will wreck a church faster than that. If anyone speaks, it goes on, let him speak as the oracles of God. What does that mean? Laleo, to speak. Logion, oracles, means utterance. In other words, when you speak, let it come from the word of God. It's as if it's coming from God himself. Now, that's what I try to do in my sermons. I'm trying to show you stuff where it came from in the Bible. Why do I put up slides? Because I want you to see, this is where it came from. 
It doesn't matter what I say. It matters what God says. Hello? And it doesn't really matter what you say. It matters what God says through you. And the Puritans were really known for this in the Anglican Church. They were known as God-saturated. You knew if they said something, it's from the Bible. Um, I, I miss my mother in that regard. My mother had all these sayings, but many of them were just right out of the Bible. Um, <laughs> and uh, this is a precious thing, really, to be so God-saturated that when you're speaking, you sound maybe like the new you know, King James Version. I'm not sure. And you're speaking what God would have you say. And then what is the point of all this? What's the point? What happens as a result of this? That in all things, God may be what? Glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. You know where that's from? Peter's quoting the Lord's Prayer there, right? And the Lord's Prayer is based on, you know, thine, thine is the kingdom of glory, you know, dominion, kingdom, glory forever and ever. Amen. That's based on Daniel 7. And Daniel 7 had all the kingdoms. And then it says judgment will be made in favor of the saints. And then it talks about the kingdom, dominion, and glory. And he's basically saying, look, God is coming soon. And we want to live in a way with our prayer life and with our ministry and with our hospitality that fervent love can be seen to the glory of God. That in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, whom belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. How many want to live that? How many want God to live that through you? Let's close together. And I want to sing a different song than we have in the hymn, hymnal. I, I'm sorry I do this, but um, for those of you who have practiced, now you can practice sight reading. More love to thee, O Christ. Um, I don't even know what number it is, but I think that's the point. How many of you want to have more love? Now let me just tell you that this song, More Love to Thee, O Christ, was written by a lady... And she didn't release the words for 13 years. And what inspired her to write it was, um, Nearer my God to thee. But what also inspired her, this is number 458, what also inspired her was, she had three children, and the first one died, and the second one died. And the third one died. And then she wrote these words that you're going to sing today. I'm sure she struggled. Um, but ultimately, she wanted this to come out of it. More love to thee, O Christ, more love to thee. Hear thou the prayer make on bended knee. This is my earnest plea. More love, O Christ, to thee. More love to thee. More love to thee. Let sorrow do its work. Send grief or pain. Sweet are their messengers. Sweet their refrain. When they can sing with me. More love, O Christ, to thee. More love to thee. More love to thee. This world is not easy. And there's nobody that gets out alive. Not very many. But even in light of that, because of who God is and what he's done and what he's doing, because of his fervent prayers for you, because of his watchfulness under prayer for you, because of his love for you, you have hope not just here but in the hereafter. And that's what she said. And it says of, of this lady, she would say every day, more love to thee. You'd hear her around the house. She was just saying all day, more love to thee. Our text says the end of all things is at hand. And like we said, that didn't mean right then for Peter. He was going to live until he couldn't even tie his own clothes together. But we don't know when our last breath will be. I had my children go skiing last week, and they came home safely. But other people went and did not come home safely. There's a man at Tahoe who went, 
And an avalanche came and buried him, and that was his last breath. And they were doing an interview with uh, someone that someone texted me, and I watched the interview, listening to the people that saw the avalanche come, and then got off the lift and frantically began searching, and everybody was searching. And then they found someone whose life ended, interestingly enough, at 61 years old. And uh, it actually got my attention a bit. So we're not promised even this next week. And that's why this text is so important, isn't it? The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be sober and watchful under prayer. Not self-focused prayer, but other focus. Searching for the people that maybe are buried in an avalanche of sin or whatever it is. Work together with the gift of fervent love, with the gift of hospitality, the gift of ministry as a collective group to bring love to people's lives. As we close, you want to commit to that? Just do that silently between you and the Lord as we sing the last verse together. Then shall my latest breath whisper thy praise. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.